Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to have you with me another Thursday evening, where we have the privilege to engage this very rich topic of theology of the body. I am flying solo today. Chris Seibert will join me along with another guest next week. Uh, Ivan Moore will no longer be joining us because of some exciting news. Uh, with his permission, I can tell you that he has officially joined uh, this seminary as of this semester to study for the Diocese of Sacramento. So Ivan Mora, my guest of over 16, 17 weeks, will be studying for the priesthood. So pray for him. Uh, he has certainly asked for your prayers, and uh, what a gift, uh, his yes. And so that is exciting news. If you want to hear Ivan Mora uh, treat theology of the body and go back into some of our dialogues, you can just go to joholcraft.org and uh, hit Theology of the Body back over the summer, and you will hear Ivan Moore reflect with me on this great topic of Theology of the Body. So, uh, exciting news, some exciting news. Now, that being said, I have received a couple of questions, and uh, they are similar. And the question is more or less concerning the origin of Theology of the Body. Now, I have spoken to this on one or two occasions, but certainly we can speak to this again briefly. Where does theology of the body come from? Well, it is right to say that John Paul II, St. John Paul II, is uh, the father to theology of the body. While we have been reflecting uh, with Benedict's uh, Deus Caritas S and Christopher West, reflection with that, the love that satisfies John Paul II is the father to the new evangelization, and if you wanted uh, the best answer to that question, what is its origins, where did this come from? Well, you have to go back to when John Paul II was young Carol Wojtyla asking the deepest questions about the meaning of man uh, during the onset of World War II. Again, he's a man, young man, who lived in Poland and uh, he could smell the soot from the concentration camp. So he was asking the deepest questions about the meaning of man, and rightfully so. And under uh, the grace and power of the Holy Spirit, uh, was he enlightened, and was he encouraged to go deeper into the faith, studying philosophy and theology? And it led him to pen this philosophical work uh, titled Love and Responsibility, now, this was a work that for a time was set aside. Now, there's an interesting caveat story here as it relates to theology of the body that I think often goes overlooked, and we really shouldn't overlook it. And it comes to us from uh, the halls of Vatican II, where one, a young Bishop Wojtyla, was uh, there present at Vatican II. And it was upon being elevated to cardinal that he changed tables, and this was uh, very fortunate for us, because at that table was one Henri de Lubac, a very influential French theologian. Some have said, some have said, that he might have been the most influential theologian there at Vatican II. Well, certainly there are other important figures to the likes of von Balthasar, Kungar, 
and of course, you know, the Pope himself. But de Lubac was very important, and uh, young Voitia had a great deal of respect for him. And de Lubac, this French theologian, knew of Voitia's work, Love and Responsibility. And it was in passing conversation uh, that he encouraged young Voitia uh, to study up more this great topic of love and responsibility and to continue the path of this theology of the body. And so he did. He returned back to his home diocese and with even more vigor and greater conviction does he engage this rich topic. And so it is that when he becomes Pope in his first 129 Wednesday catechetical audiences, does he give us his theology of the body. So from 1979 to 1984, in 129 catechetical audiences, that is, each and every Wednesday afternoon, he'd go out into the Vatican Plaza and he would teach on theology of the body. Uh, This work is densely philosophical, and so we've had other theologians engage this and try to downsize it for us so as to gain insight into how to incorporate this theology of the body into our lives. Uh, To better understand it is to incorporate it uh, more into our lives. So this is why we do what we do here on the radio, exploring these very, very rich topics. What's interesting to note as well is you know, you really do see that seamlessness between love and responsibility and theology of the body. If you were to just take, take a look at the chapters of love and responsibility, what do you find? Well, a chapter on friendship, you know, what makes a true friendship and how this kind of friendship lays the foundation for love. John Paul II treats attraction. Uh, he treats relationships. He treats men and women, the differences between men and women, and the particular needs of a man and a woman in marriage. He treats uh, love, of course, the two aspects of love that we've been talking about over recent months. Uh, And in a most fascinating chapter and sub-chapter, he gets into the emotions and, and the difference between feeling I am in love and love itself, how the emotions can either be incorporated into love or hinder true love from ever developing. He, of course, gets into sexuality, and he responds to some contemporary questions. You know, why should people wait until they are married to have sex? Or what constitutes a lustful thought? Uh, How is human sexual desire different from animal instinct? All these questions that we might have uh, that he responds to. In other chapters, of course, he gets into the topic of marriage, Uh, He engages chastity. He develops chastity actually a great deal and how to win the fight for purity in our relationships and in our hearts. So what we're made to see with love and responsibility is that it is not some dry manual on sexual ethics or some abstract treatise on love. When you read it properly, it is down to earth and it sheds much light on the very real issues we face today in our relationships with the opposite sex. This is the gift of love and responsibility, and this is the gift of theology of the body. And we can also add that this is also the gift of Benedict's work, Deus Caritas Est, this work that we've been treating in light of Christopher West's reflection. So let us engage this. We are in chapter 5. If you have your books out there, if you've purchased the work, wherever you may be listening to this radio program, if you have gone out of your way and 
you've gone to Amazon.com and you've purchased the work, the love that satisfies. If you turn to page 80, we'll go ahead and here start with excerpt 31. We are midway through this chapter, uh, this chapter 5, where we are uh, looking at the meeting of Eros and Agape. Huh? So this is excerpt 31 from Benedict's work, Deus Caritas Est. He says this, Certainly, as the Lord tells us, one can become a source from which rivers of living water flow. Yet to become such a source, one must constantly drink anew from the original source, which is Jesus Christ, from whose pierced heart flows the love of God. Mm. What does this sound like, my friends? I mean, if you are a faithful listener to this radio program, you know that this sounds like the stuff of in God for other. This great structure of our faith, gift task, conversion mission, come to know him so as to make him known. New identity, new goal, huh? Now, this excerpt from Benedict XVI has us going back to the Gospel of John. It is St. John who reports that when the soldier pierced Christ's side, as he records in John 19, verse 34, at once there came out blood and water. We also know that he is the disciple whom, what? Jesus loved, who had lain close to his breast at the supper. You know, what treasures, huh? <laughs> must have been revealed to John as he lay there on our Lord's chest, listening to his beating heart. Have you ever thought about that? I think that can be a powerful and most beautiful reflection. You know, what exchange of human and divine love. The same perfection of love that John felt beating in Jesus' heart during the Last Supper, he then sees the next day as he watches uh, the blood and water flow from his side. Now, in Christopher West's work, The Love That Satisfies, he shares how he was once uh, very much touched by listening to a recording of Bishop Fulton Sheen, and, and he, this is Christopher West writing. He says, years ago, while listening to a recorded lecture of Bishop Fulton Sheen, my eyes were opened to new dimensions of the mystery of the cross. Sheen's booming voice still echoes in my mind. Do you know what is happening at the foot of the cross? He asked. Nuptials, I tell you, nuptials. Describing the cross as a marriage bed mounted, not in pleasure but in pain, the good bishop challenged his listeners to recognize the rich significance of Christ's words to Mary and John. Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And so it is Bishop Sheen went on to explain that whenever Jesus calls Mary woman, such as at the wedding in Cana and at the cross, he is speaking as the new Adam to the new Eve, the bridegroom to the bride. Uh, that's Christopher West reflecting back on Fulton Sheen's words. So here, of course, the relationship is outside the realm of blood. Now, the fact that this bride is Jesus' biological mother, needn't trouble this. The marriage of the new Adam and new Eve, consummated at the cross, certainly at its center, is mystical, as the Catechism refers to this woman, Mary, as the bride of the Lamb. Now, penetrating these mystical realms, we could say, opens us up treasures for us, as Benedict would put it, from which rivers of living water flow. Huh? 
Just, just as the first Adam was put into a deep sleep and Eve came from his side, so the new Adam accepts the slumber of death. And the new Eve, the church, symbolized here by Mary, who is the archetype of the church, is born of his side in the flow of blood and water. And certainly, these two symbols, as we've spoken to it before, point to baptism and the Eucharist. The church is betrothed to Christ in this nuptial birth of baptism and their union that is consummated in the wedding feast of the Eucharist. If you were to go to the Catechism, paragraphs uh, 1067, 1617, you'll see this drawn out a little bit more. You know, what does the word nuptial mean? The Latin base speaks to uh, marriage vows, essentially, or uh, something that points towards a consummation. So when we use the word nuptials or, or, or nuptial, what we speak to is this marriage that points to a consummation. This is very important as we talk about theology of the body, because we've noted it before, the icon of the crucifix is really the symbol from which we gain our understanding and insight into the relationship and the meeting of Eros and Agape. Now, this great nuptial mystery that we speak to has been artistically portrayed uh, by a number of artists. There's one renowned image of Mary holding a chalice, or sometimes a large jug reminiscent of Cana, at the foot of the cross, receiving the flow of blood and water from Christ's side. If you were to go into history, there is some fascinating art that portrays uh, this relationship between uh, Christ and his church and the uniqueness of Mary as the archetype of, of the church. Now, I believe this to be also very important because as we talk about Cana, remember the words of Christ in that exchange between Mary and Christ at the wedding feast at Cana, when Mary intercedes on behalf of the people, what does Christ say? My hour has not yet come. And all throughout the Gospel of John, Christ is talking about his hour. Well, his hour has arrived. <coughs> it's really fascinating when you think about it, because when you hear those words, my hour has not yet come, the assertion hides an important assumption. I mean, the statement itself would seem exaggerated unless the provision of wine was somehow connected to our Lord's appointed hour. Uh, certainly, the hour points beyond the historical hour of his passion to the commemoration of that hour in which Christ institutes the Eucharist, where Christ is present behind the visible sign of wine. Uh, this is a rich, rich study when you take it up in the Gospel of John, because the constancy to which John draws out the image of uh, the hour. So here we have the beloved disciple that really in many ways represents the offspring that is born anew, as 1 Peter 1.23 would remind us, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, not of blood, but of God. And so it is this new birth in the living waters of baptism that we share in. And this redemptive blood, which we constantly drink anew in the Eucharist, enables us to love as God loves in a more perfect integration of eros and agape. You know, the scene at the foot of the cross, the trinity of love between Mary, Christ, 
and the beloved disciple presents, in fact, we could say, and Christopher West makes this point, a perfect integration of eros and agape. Now that, that heaving, sweating, bleeding body, giving itself over, poured out so that we might live. This is the most perfect expression of love ever manifested on earth. This is the love that we yearn for. This is the love that now belongs to us. This is the love that God says to us, receive so that you might live. Huh? What a provocative image that Christ leaves for us. This bleeding body as an expression of perfect love. I mean, contemplate that next time you go to prayer. We need to only open the gift. If you go back to the cross, what do we discover? At the foot of the cross, Mary offers a perfect human openness. In Christ, the gift is perfectly given. In Mary, the gift is perfectly received. And of course, the beloved disciple's new birth is the proof of it. This is the birth we share in. I mean, my dear friends, this is the gospel message. This is the evangelion. This is the good news that is a transforming message. Remember what I have said in the past about how we are to understand and interpret the word gospel itself. It is just not glad tidings and good news. No, it is a transforming message. And at the heart of this message is the birth that we share in. Because in baptism, we are incorporated into the very life of God. A most wonderful gift. And this is exciting news. Okay, let us turn to excerpt number 32 here. These are the words of Benedict XVI. In the account of Jacob's ladder, the fathers of the church saw this inseparable connection between ascending and descending love, between eros, which seeks God, and agape, which passes on the gift received. Now, what a widely important image for us here, huh? Reflecting upon this image, eros is considered the ascending love because it seeks, it yearns, and searches for what? Ecstasy, happiness, transcendence. Agape, on the other hand, involves a kind of divine descending to man in sacrifice and oblation. You know, it is in the Old Testament that Jacob dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth and that the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, what do we read? The angels of God were ascending and descending on it. In the New Testament, what do we read? Christ echoing those words. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Let us pause here to reflect upon the importance of how we read sacred scripture. You know, in Theology of the Body, John Paul II spends a great deal of time in the Old Testament. So many of us read sacred scripture and we just focus on the New Testament. But this would be folly. I mean, Paul quotes the Old Testament over 500 times. If we are going to properly read scripture, we must read the Old Testament and the New Testament as one single drama of God's love affair with man. 46 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books, gives us 73 
books. You know, how many of you out there, when you go to read a book, start in chapter 47? Well, when we go to read the Gospel of Matthew, what are we doing? We are starting in chapter 47, huh? (laughs) We need to spend time with the first 46 chapters so as to better understand chapter 47, right? I mean, think about the first few verses that Matthew gives us. Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. He wants his audience to go back into who Abraham was and the covenant made between Abraham and God, and who David was and the covenant made between David and God. Okay, I pause here to briefly reflect upon this because this is very important for how we go about not only better understanding how to read sacred scripture, but also how to better read John Paul II's theology of the body. We are constantly made to see how Christ is the fulfillment of the prophetic thrust of the Old Testament. What were Christ's words? You search the scriptures because in them they bear witness to me. What was he doing on the road to Emmaus? But revealing to those who were before him how he is a new Moses. Okay, so what is needed here is a sound understanding of how to go about interpreting Scripture. And I pause on this again because how important is it to better understand eros and agape in light of that great passage that comes to us from Genesis 28, 12 and Jacob's ladder. Uh, And here, uh, what we are made to see is that Christ is the ladder between heaven and earth. Christ comes down from heaven in this agape love to fulfill our human yearning this erotic love. Christ is the living water. I mean, if we drink it, what are we reminded of from John 4, 14? We will never thirst again. In that wonderful exchange between Christ and the Samaritan woman, we are reminded that if we draw from the living water, we will never thirst again. Why? Because as John 6, 35 reminds us, he is the bread of life. And if we eat and draw from this bread, we will never hunger. We will never thirst again. You know, it's really interesting. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself as we are talking about thirst and hunger, because if you go back to that exchange between Christ and the Samaritan woman, we discover a most fascinating truth, and it really hones us in on a finer point as it relates to theology of the body. Why? Well, let us go back to what Jesus says to the Samaritan woman. Go, call your husband, and come here. And what does the woman respond with? I have no husband. And then Jesus says something curious. You're right in saying I have no husband, for you had five husbands, and he whom you now have is not your husband's. This you said truly. Then the woman says to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship? Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, ah, the hour is coming. Once again, that that all-important word, hour. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. (laughs) What's going on here? Well, this whole language of five husbands... Okay, historically, this woman has obviously endured her marital struggles. But the woman's personal life parallels the historical experience of the Samaritan people. What do I mean? Well, 
the ten tribes break off, and they go worship upon Mount Gerizim in the north. And the splitting of the twelve tribes, my friends, is why we have all of the great prophets. That's why we have the prophetic literature, because all of those prophets spoke to the reuniting of the twelve tribes. But what did they do? They slipped into this idolatry where they are worshiping five pagan gods, specifically idols that were individually addressed as what? Baal, B-A-A-L, a Hebrew word that literally means Lord or husband. So when Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, you are right in saying you have no husband. You had five husbands, and now behold... I am he before you that you are now to call husband, and the one husband that will leave you never thirsting again. And it is to the degree that we experience this living fulfillment of hope in Christ that we long to pass on the gift we have received. In this reality of yearning, receiving, and passing on, What we discover, my friends, is the integration of the sensual and the sacred. As Christopher West says, the sexual and the spiritual, the human and the divine, the eros and the agape. Eros seeks a fulfillment that in all reality, no human being can supply. I mean, think about it. God alone is the satisfaction of the heart's desire. God is the ultimate object of eros. Because as we have noted in the past, at the root of all sexual yearning is really a cry for God. At the root of all desire, we discover our thirst for infinity. Amen to that. Christopher West has a wonderful quote here. He goes to St. Augustine. And St. Augustine here says, Our life is a gymnasium of desire. When we say God, what do we wish to express? This word is all that we are waiting for. Huh, amen to that. And we wait because we do not yet see and know God as he is. But even in the here and now, even in the here and now, especially in and through the mystery of prayer and the sacramental life, we can what? See, hear, feel, smell, and taste something of God. To the degree that we have received and live in this divine gift that our Lord calls us to share. And what is that great passage? 2 Peter 1.4, we are shares and participators in the divine life of God. So yes, to the degree that we have received and live in this divine gift, we desire in turn to be the same gift to others that God has been to us. As Benedict says, remember that excerpt, huh? Eros seeks God. And agape passes on the gift received. Mm, Amen. This is rich, rich stuff, is it not? I mean, this is the kind of thing that we need to reflect upon again and again because it is so rich. It has so many layers, but we are called to peel back these layers so as to just draw from this richness. All right, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. 
and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.